0: i
1: This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Dan Baltic. And this is Matt Pegas. And this is episode 49. We are here with Max Thrax, who is not only the managing editor of Apocalypse Confidential, which is a a literary magazine which focuses on... Uh, to some extent, noir fiction and and uh, pulp fiction, but uh, he is also the author of a uh, a very good book, a very good novel called "God Is a Killer," and uh, we are you know very happy to uh, have you here today, Max.
2: I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely. So yeah, no, we um we came across uh, God Is a Killer. And came across before before I knew about your novel. I was, of course, familiar with Apocalypse Confidential, which has had a kind of like meteoric, in some sense, rise since they. I think you guys started in like a little over a year ago, and You're starting like, year three right now. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. I mean, not but yeah, not not for too long. Okay. Uh, well, in that case, uh, but yes, not for too long. And you, um, I, there's like a, a real kind of aesthetic right now on the right that I think um, the, the e-right, whatever you want to call this this side of Twitter, that uh, emphasizes a kind of like pulp and noir-like elements. You see it in Apocalypse Confidential. You, you see it, I think, a bit with uh, Brendan Lusso's aesthetic, uh, certainly blauer who is of course the uh, the editor in chief of apocalypse confidential and um yeah so this this is a, a force that is kind of like shaping the aesthetic of our side so we you know we knew about apocalypse confidential and uh, when your novel came out Matt had a very interesting uh, comment, which is uh, well, just right. Take it away, Matt.
3: It's it's almost a very flattering comment, and then it's, it's <laughs> I, I wish I could land the comment a little better, but I but the what the the to, to condense it into one line, it's a your book, God is a Killer, is 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 the only book that I almost om- from our scene at least that I almost bought just based on the cover. I wish I could tell you that I did just buy it based on the cover. But you know, in a world with stacks of books we're reading for this podcast and stuff, and you know, it's not exactly like we're making bank. I don't just—I don't often like just impulse buy a book. But I, so I, I can't quite land the comment that I actually did purchase it. But I remember when I saw it. When I, when did it come out? Like the end of 21 or the beginning of last year? It came out May 27th last year. Okay, all right, yeah. Timelines get strange on the internet, right? You don't always. But anyway. I, the, the cover is so cool, in my opinion, um, just those colors, uh, not to sound degenerate, but that inverted cross, it was all like, what what is this all about? So I came very close uh, to buying it based on the cover alone. Um, but so it's not it's not a fully landed, like, great story. But uh, but I, I have to say, you know, it really is a very compelling color, uh, cover and title. Um, and, you know, it's a good example, like, which which is, a, you know, in our scene, I think it's a high compliment because there's so many different books you know to to sort through um, that yours definitely stands out and I was glad to finally get a chance to actually purchase it and read it in advance of this conversation
2: oh great well thank you I mean I wish I could take credit for the cover I mean it's amazing Matthew Reverend is the guy who did it Um, you know he's one of the top designers you know kind of on the indie scene in general I'd loved a bunch of his covers before that Um, so I knew I was going to get him and on top of him just being an incredibly talented designer we have a lot of the same tastes in common um, mm-hmm. He likes a lot of, you know, Penguin paperbacks from the 60s and 70s, um, as well as a lot of Polish poster designers. So we really got along on that level. And I told him, well, basically, you know, you know what I like, so just do whatever you want. And I think that, that maybe that freed him up a little bit to do, you know, what's, what I think is a really incredible cover.
1: Yeah. Awesome. No. I think Great. at this point, we should probably note that uh, your novel was published by Close to the Bone, which is a UK publishing company that seems to... Um, and tell me if I'm putting words in anyone's mouth, but seems to specialize in also Pulp Fiction of some sort. Yeah,
2: yeah it specializes in, you know, pretty hard, hard-boiled crime fiction, mm. um, as well as a bit of transgressive fiction. Not everything they've published is crime, but that's always been their focus. And, uh, you know, that's it was one of the presses that I gravitated towards kind of when I got on the scene, the independent crime scene a couple of years ago. That was one of the couple of presses that I really took seriously and, you know, thought, well, I would I would like to publish something with them. Yeah, no, they're really
3: cool. I like, this, the, you know, they're one of these, I guess, slightly more genre based, but I do, as you said, I think they would publish kind of a range of different types of transgressive stuff. Um, very cool, very cool, you know, aesthetic there where, you know, it's all close to the bone, meaning sort of like, you know, as pulp fiction does, as crime fiction does, as transgressive fiction can, you know, really kind of fiction that gets under your skin with its language and everything. I've also read, other a couple other books from their from their roster including uh, you know friend of the pod uh gabriel hart uh also publishes with close to the bone i know so it's it's definitely uh, a publishing house that that um that our listeners should have on their radar and i'm glad you know god is a killer is uh would be a great place to start i think uh with close to the bone but they're british based right
2: yeah they're based in britain i think the actual you know the office is in rugby and uh, the guy who runs it, Craig Douglas, he's, uh, I believe he he said he was living in a mining village in the Northeast. I'm not exactly sure where. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, yeah, that was part of his bio. Yeah, he's hes English, too. And uh, yeah, they've got a lot of, they've had a lot of really great writers over the years. I mean, right now, Gabriel's on there. And also, uh, one of my favorite books of last year, Blood Trip by Jesse Hilson. Oh, okay. right. Yeah, oh, yeah, so, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, Jesse. We know
3: Jesse somewhat.
2: Yeah, <laughs> another new war another book. So yeah, I should read
1: that. Yeah. Um... Yeah, Jesse's cool, and uh,
3: no, uh, what was I going to say? Something about close to the bone. Um,
1: so UK, um, it's an interesting thing about UK publishers because I remember before I, you know, even was shopping nutcranker around that—that's my debut novel—to uh, to anyone, and I was just kind of thinking like, you know, and before I was even really, you know, before New right was a thing, before I was on the E Write, whatever that means. Um, I was figuring out, I wrote Nutcranker, how to get it published, and so I was talking to a uh, professor from my college who's a well-known literary fiction author, and he kind of co-signed on the, the issues in literary fiction, mainstream literary fiction today, which are, uh, well, you know, men such as myself are not going to be very easily published, and um so he recommended reaching out to uk agents and british small presses and so i wonder uh yeah i mean this seems to give uh, credence to to what he said and that that wasn't what i did i reached out to matt forney and got published by terror house which i'm very happy with but um uh yeah I, i do wonder was your experience with like a uk press are they a little more uh based shall we say I mean, Craig's pretty based. I mean, if you look at the logo, you can see what close to the Bone is all about. I mean, you
2: don't really need to see any more than that. Um, But it wasn't really on a political basis that, you know, I sort of was looking at them. It was purely aesthetically. And like in general, I'm not really a political person, certainly not online. Um, But aesthetics mean a lot to me. Uh, Literature certainly means a lot to me. And, uh, you know, those are sort of the things that I look for, aesthetic value, literary value. And... um, A couple of the authors on Close to the Bone had a big impact on the way that I write. Uh, One of the first things that Craig did was a series of novellas uh, called the Near to the Knuckle series. And there were a couple books in there. I think it was A Day in the Life of Jason Dean was one by Ian Harris and uh, Eye for an Eye by Paul Heatley. They were both gangster novels or novellas. And uh, they opened up a few things for me because I didn't know you could actually write about that stuff. You don't see a lot of, uh, for whatever reason, American authors just writing about gangland or, you yeah. know, pretty or serious urban crime. Um, even in noir, a lot of it is either almost like a domestic drama or, you know, it's it's a rural noir, sort of like God is a killer. Um, and maybe I think that is a bit different over in the UK where you still have a lot of urban crime um, that the writers are, are close to and, that, you know, maybe they grow up around.
1: Um, so that, that was a little
2: bit different. And for whatever reason, a lot of them seem to come from the Northeast as well. Uh, yeah. You know, Durham, Northumberland, uh, Tyneside, around Newcastle. Um, I can name, you know, probably three or four authors just from that region. Um, so I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just something in the water. Yeah,
1: I remember I almost studied abroad at the uh, the University of East Anglia. And, uh, yeah, I almost wish that I, I wound up studying in London, but um, I almost wish I did study there.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. that place has got a pretty strong literary pedigree. Yeah. Um, Anglia.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, that, that was a good school.
2: But, yeah, London is, you know, you can do a lot of things in London. <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not sure literature. I did much than get drunk. But... Yeah, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> that's
2: usually topical. <laughs> yeah. I've never um,
3: been to London, but my understanding is kind of more the cosmopolitan area obviously but i have been to yorkshire so that's like northeast england and yeah i can see how that could breed a certain kind of similar to new england in the united states not new england also has its cosmopolitan areas obviously in, in sort of uh neoliberal modern type areas no doubt but there's that i don't know there's some yeah as you said there's something in the water in, in certain places like uh, i think northern england and, and new england in the united states where i don't know it's cold the the roots run deep um, and I can see how it breeds a certain um, kind of bleaker outlook on things, which um, definitely comes through in God is a killer, but I imagine some of these uh, English books from Close to the Bone as well.
1: Yeah. Well, to kind of like jump off of that, I think that's a good way to kind of uh, find a vein into God is a killer. And um, yeah, so to like jump into your novel here more deeply, it um, is obviously a uh, a pulp fiction of sorts, which is set in New England and it kind of revolves around and you know, stop me if I'm putting words in your mouth. The uh, battle, not even metaphorical, but battle between Sheriff Fitzroy and uh, McDougall, who is this kind of uh, psychopathic, uh, religious gangster who uh, previously and, and still to some extent wants, he wants to reclaim a cult that he had started a, a religious cult that uh, is centered in the, uh, the mansion or the, the house of this, uh, this woman who uh, is now trying to sell that land to a developer. And uh, so this is kind of the, the context into which uh, the, the reader is thrust. So everything is very much like everything's in motion. Like literally the book starts out with uh, a, a character who you introduce for a few pages. And then, well, I, I, I don't think this really ruins anything for anyone. If they read more than three or four pages, he gets shot and killed by, uh, well, I guess not by McDougal, by his henchmen, but you know, essentially by McDougal and um, yeah. And so it's, it's this very, uh, you know, set up for this uh, strong cast of characters in New England, in this noir setting. And uh, so, yeah, how, how did you kind of, I mean, we'll talk about some of the themes, but how did you find your way into this story? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how did you, how did it start?
2: Well, that's a good question because it went through, I think, a couple of different iterations before I ended up with, you know, the final product or whatever, God is a killer finally became, it did start with McDougal. He was the first character that I had and his name was McDougal, but he wasn't a, a cult leader or a religious fanatic. He was, um, he, it's hard to say what he was. He was kind of like an alien hunter. He believed that uh, aliens had come down to earth and the government had found them and performed all these experiments on them and buried their skeletons all over the country. Oh. and uh, it was mcdougall and his his kind of crew of, of diggers who would go out with their you know archaeological tools and uh go to go around to these different sites and try to dig up these alien bones and of course mcdougall was utterly convinced that this was all true um so so that was the first draft that i wrote and it didn't really
1: get that far but that well, that's was great you know, though like yeah, I, really I love how man. like novels start out as something entirely yeah. different but you carry on this kind of like, and that's kind of similar to my process as well. I like, I write and write until I find a character I like. And then that character, that's what the novel will be about. So like, it sounds like maybe you kind of like wrote until you found McDougal. And then you figured out like, well, okay, this, this is what McDougal is going to be doing. He's not going to be digging up aliens. He's exactly.
2: Yeah. Be, I, just, um, I kept the emotional core you know, the yeah. spine of the character who's motivated by, you know, anger and fanaticism and, uh, you know, different unpleasant emotions. Um, so I just eventually he just became a religious fanatic. And I read a book about doomsday cults. It's called How the Millennium Comes Violently. It's an academic book. And uh, just chapter by chapter, they go through the different groups, you know, all the classic ones, you know, Jonestown, uh, Heaven's Gate, Omshin um, Shinrikyu. And, uh, you know, I read quite a bit about the Branch Davidians. Um, you know, that oh, yeah. was very interesting. Um, I took some inspiration from him and also some of the power struggles that went on in the group before he took control because uh, he was not the clear cut uh, successor to leading the Branch Davidians. Uh, he had some pretty bitter rivalries with other people in the group. Um, OK, so some some of that lore um, I kind of used as a springboard for interesting, uh, yeah. that story in the book. It's, I mean, it's not it's very loosely paraphrased, you know? I mean, none of it is, you know, kind of like bit for bit, but that was my inspiration for it. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, um, that's sort of, now
3: okay. Just bring it back briefly just for one second to Apocalypse Confidential. Um, That kind of theme is sort of in line with, I mean, obviously Apocalypse Confidential has the word apocalypse right in it. Uh, it's kind of like a, you know, portmanteau of Apocalypse Confidential and LA Confidential or Apocalypse and LA Confidential is always how I imagine it. I, I don't want to I don't think Apocalypse Confidential shoehorns anything too much. But one of the things that I like about the site is that it kind of lays out all these um different broad themes. You know, there's a, in the about section, it just lays out a really interesting list of inspirations, everything from Hollywood Babylon to Looney Tunes and just this kind of random stuff going in. So I I don't really know what I'm asking here other than to say. Uh, is that one of uh I know and I know that um God is a killer is not technically published by apocalypse confidential but it's you know published by you and uh in you know as a figure involved with apocalypse confidential I guess I guess uh that's part of what I'm at is 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 that sort of apocalyptic do you view that apocalyptic aesthetic as sort of part and parcel of both apocalypse confidential and your novel or are they separate or you know is it would you identify that as a kind of preoccupation of kind of you and, and some of the people that you're associated with online?
2: It could be. Um, I think that the novel is one of the reasons why Jacob asked me to join as fiction editor, uh, for Confidential, yeah. because we do have a lot of the same preoccupations, you know, same sort of things that we like to watch or read, um, you know, whether yeah. it's fiction or nonfiction. So, um, you know, it was huge when he asked me to join up because without even realizing it, I mean that was what I wanted. You know, yeah. I wanted to be part of what he was building. Um, so yeah, that was huge for me. Interesting.
3: Yeah, no, not to necessarily we'll get we'll go back to the to the novel more proper in a moment. Um, but I did want to ask about that. So you kind of have been with Apocalypse Confidential from the ground up. Were you friends with Jacob beforehand?
2: So well, we're like, right, yeah, we're heading into year three now. Right. Um so the year one was just Jacob by himself. I and see. then year two is when I joined and, uh, you know, Dawson and Brendan and Tom and Hermes all joined up as editors. And uh, we just added another, like Tolly is now one of our, edit- is our editor at large. Um, yeah. So we, ju- we just changed our masthead this month. This is all pretty recent.
1: Because yeah. I noticed you had been fiction editor, but as I'm doing the, you know, the prep for this episode, I realized, oh, you got a little promotion there. Yeah, I did. So
2: as with all promotions, you know, I get to twiddle my thumbs a bit more uh, and Dawson uh, yeah. do <laughs> all the work. So yeah, well, when I was fiction editor, I was reading all the fiction submissions um, or at least the ones that were kind of getting sent my way by Jacob and saying, you know, yes or no, this is accepted or this is rejected. Yeah. Now that I'm managing editor, I read everything that comes in, uh, whether it's fiction, poetry, or essays, but I don't respond to anybody. Um, I just, I see what's coming in, you know, and if an editor wants a second opinion, I mean, they can ask me, or if I think that, you know, we passed on something that maybe, you know, we should actually publish, I can talk to the editor and question about it. Yeah. Um, And I help and just help come up with the editorial schedule in general.
3: Yeah. Very
2: nice higher up role. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's gonna be a big year for us because this is uh, we have a books editor now, which we didn't have last year. So we've got oh, bill nice. on board. Yeah, and we've got some books coming out this year. So there will be some hard copies in people's hands.
1: Oh, uh, awesome! So you yeah. so Apocalypse Confidential is moving to the oppress press as well and to publish. Yeah, yeah, that
2: was uh, we talked about that a lot last year. And so you know, yeah, now year three we're moving into uh, to physical. Excellent.
1: Movie. Yeah. No, I mean I think that's a natural progression, and any like lit magazine who has a brand. Like, why aren't they doing that? You should be doing that. So, good. Yeah, and as as far
2: as whatever influence we have over, you know, the scene of this side, I don't really know because I think I'm just too close to it. I'm too concerned with, like, the nuts and bolts of being part of a Apocalypse Confidential. Just making sure I do a good job with that. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, it is. I mean, we seem to be doing pretty well. And I think that one of the reasons why is because we're not really trying to be anything you know i mean the stuff that we publish is pretty intense but if you see any of us online i mean we're pretty we're pretty chill yeah i think people just kind of respect that it's like we're not trying to to hype ourselves up too much or do things too fast or promise things that we can't deliver so you know i think that's probably why people respect us
1: definitely i think a lot of um kind of and this is a a, almost at this point a tired trope on our show But uh, people or artists who are, you know, focusing on their art at the, um, you know, putting the art first before other ideological or political considerations, in a sense that places you on our side of Twitter, regardless of like your actual political beliefs, because like in this day and age to say like, I'm focusing on the art, the, you know, the politics can go screw. Like, that is, like, almost, you know, certainly in the mainstream publishing industry, you have sensitivity readers, you have all of this, you know, like, sensors, like, did you say the wrong thing? And uh, so, yeah, I think that kind of honest art, and the, the only good art is honest art, um, pretty much, in my opinion. Um, it's, you know, it comes out of our spaces. And right, so and I mean... It, so that's right. why we, we, uh, you know, you are on our radar to some right. extent. Exactly. Yeah. I mean,
2: yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I'm very happy to be independent at the moment because, you know, I, I certainly have nothing to offer mainstream publishing at this point, uh, which is just as well. Cause I think mainstream publishing is probably at its lowest point ever. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's gotten so consolidated and overblown and there's just not a lot of quality coming out of it. So, I mean, it's not that everything that's independent is good. I mean, certainly not, but,
1: the stuff mean, but that at least stand the out for is, is, yeah. is
2: coming out of independent presses absolutely
1: at least quality notwithstanding you at least in a independent uh, at independent presses you have the ability depending on the press of course to write what you want to write to say what you want to say and that is a, a force in and of itself in terms of artistic quality so like yeah just a, a man writing saying what he wants to say that will have more power than the kind of like most polished uh kind of obfuscating story that tries to highlight and hit the right notes like yeah just a man screaming what he, he needs to say that's that's better art right there in my opinion Absolutely. yeah no i completely agree
2: yeah and i mean i think that ultimately the art is what matters anyway I mean, that's what people look at i mean exactly is, do, any of, do any of our mutuals really care what michael mann's politics are like No, not really. You know, don't I mean I don't even know. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, (laughs) this stuff anyway. So yeah, it doesn't really matter. Oh, the only thing that I know how to do, or at least try to do is just make something cool. That's it. You know, and that's hard enough. You know, that takes all of my energy.
1: Yeah, completely. Well, speaking of making something cool to dig back into God is a killer, you've created this really powerful character in McDougal. And so I think the kind of the cat and mouse game between McDougal and the sheriff, it um, you know obviously is an homage to the you know classic uh, pulp and noir trope of the kind of uh, uh, battle between good versus evil on a, a playing field and in a world where they run into each other and the morality becomes something that's uh, murky and ambivalent and so like yes McDougal is like obviously the villain and fitzroy is the hero but um and i think this was intentionally a choice of yours they um you know they both have sympathetic elements and they both have uh you know villainous elements to them
2: yeah when i started writing the book or at least you know what what became its final form you know what you have now I self-consciously decided that I wasn't gonna try to be too original with the book. I mean, first of all, it's my debut novel, so nobody knows who I am, you know, whatsoever. Um, so I kind of wanted to give people something that they could recognize and, you know, maybe sink their teeth into a little bit. So of the four sort of main characters, I mean, they're all, you know, archetypal noir characters. Uh, Cause you've got McDougal, who's, you know, the violent religious fanatic. You've got Sarah, who's the poor little rich girl. Uh, you've got Fitzroy, who's like the, the Jim Thompson-esque, you know, corrupt county sheriff, and then you got Timmy, who's you know the young guy who's just a little slow, you know, maybe like Lenny, and I mean not 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 quite as slow as you know Lenny and Mouse and Men, but you know that's, he's grown up in a very sheltered environment. He doesn't know a lot about the world. You know, all he really knows is that he used to be a lot happier before McDougal left. That, yeah, that's, that's, his, that's his emotional touchstone.
0: Yeah.
3: I think it's such a fascinating choice to kind of lean into writing in terms of archetypes and writing something familiar. I think, especially in independent publishing, um, a lot of people do want to be original. And, um, you know, we all, oh, not all of us, many of us grew up reading people like David Foster Wallace, who Dan just did a stream about, which I'll plug um thank you Matt. Where, where there's like that there's like such of that aesthetic singularity of you know putting footnotes in your novel and having these sentences that are oh so recognizable but I think um there, there's kind of an underrated thing to yeah make that choice to make that choice to uh write something that people can sink their teeth into I think it's kind of a much more um level-headed uh take on on you know on writing especially especially when you are you know publishing more or less independently and it's your first novel um you know it's probably something that i could think more about i think probably as a younger writer i spent far too much time thinking like okay what's my voice how am i gonna stand out how am i gonna be the voice of my generation and make this statement that um you know is going to be utterly singular whereas i think there is a power in this isn't like um, a backhanded compliment because I think you can start from that place of writing in terms of more uh, something more familiar and in terms of archetypes, and you can end up somewhere very singular. But I think starting from that place um, is a really interesting choice and probably one that uh, would be beneficial to a lot of aspiring writers because it's it's easier to find your way into that story than always being worried about how you know original you're being all the time. I guess
2: right i mean it can save a lot of time certainly and i mean if you are writing in a genre your readers expect you to conform to at least some of the conventions of that genre um you know yeah. you're not going to be able to fool them uh you know they they know all about the form that you're working in um so they're going to be judging you th- you know that way as a genre writer you know so i'm judged as a writer of noir as a crime novelist
3: yeah no oh i was going to say it's it's also yeah. probably inherent to the genre you're working in and exactly and crime fiction um I think it's really, really cool. Um, what was I going to say?
2: Yeah. Well, it's also, it might just be the way I am temperamentally. Yeah. You know, I, I I need some, I like to improvise, but I do need some kind of base to work from. I mean, it could yeah, just be my personality. No, um, but I think that's like,
3: I don't know. You hear like it's a Miles Davis quote. Like you have to learn the rules to forget them. I, I really think like there is something like um basic like kind of plot structure and character archetypes and just kind of leaning into writing what we're talking about here is entertainment value you know right because the, the the reason these things are archetypes the reason these things are familiar is because they're entertaining mm-hmm. and i think that there's an undervaluation in the pretentious you know world of literature there's a and especially you know for people who come up through the college system and, and whatnot there's an undervalue and, and you know god forbid like critical theory and all that there's a real undervaluation of, of reading books because it's entertaining and because it's enjoyable and that's how you end up with a lot of people again i'm actually you know i myself am guilty of this i end up with a lot of you know aspiring writers who are who are not nearly focused enough on writing an entertaining story and instead are you know again trying to make these extra literary statements but yeah there really is something to, to the form itself in terms of plot. Um, and I think that, you know, maybe that's a strength of your book and maybe in this whole kind of pulp fiction, you know, thing we're talking about in our scene, maybe, maybe that's part of what it is, is kind of a return to just writing enjoyable stuff, um, in a way that, you know, a lot of mainstream and pretentious uh, literary circles don't pay enough attention to.
2: Probably not. I mean, the energy and the vitality of pulp fiction is definitely something that, you know, I, I aspire towards um, in my writing. And um, what I think ultimately what I do is I just, I start with the feeling, not even with a character or a setting or, you know, a central action of the story, just the feeling. And then I use whatever I know of technique, you know, whatever I know of, you know, writing fiction to kind of, to change things around until I get the feeling where I'm satisfied. Um, so yeah, it's not really so much, you know, the words or the sentences or the paragraphs or the chapters, it's what's going on between the words and the sentences and the paragraphs and the chapters, especially in the form that I'm writing in, uh, which is pretty objective, you know, kind of like a hard-boiled style where it's mostly action, you know, because dialogue is also a type of action. So there's not too much exposition. There's not too much going inside the characters. Well, yeah, and I think another version of, of kind of what I
3: said a moment ago is like there's an undervaluation of action in literature. I actually had a, a professor, not a professor, you know, well, he wasn't, he didn't have a PhD, but he was my writing teacher in college he was always harping on, like, you guys need to make more stuff happen in your stories. Because, like, there's this tendency for a lot of uh, people in college and maybe just in, in life now to to write these sort of uh, Holden Caulfield-esque protagonists and they're depressed and and nothing happens in their story. But, like, what he emphasizes, like, interesting stories involve external not just navel-gazing, like, people in their own heads, but, like, stuff happening in the world. Uh, and, like, the, the more you can suss that out the more interesting your plot's going to be like uh, introspective protagonists are great but like you need to bring them into the into the realm of uh cause and effect uh and there's there, i, th- I do think there's a resistance on the part of a lot of aspiring literary types to do that both in terms of aspiring writers but he, i think this teacher that i had even pointed to like uh i'm trying to give some examples but even his point was even like a lot of mainstream books are like veering away from from just yeah that that good world of that good plot driven world of cause and effect.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I write. It's probably one of the reasons why I chose to write in this genre, because when I was sort of sitting around thinking, well, what am I going to do as a writer? Um, I mean, before I had really published anything, I I knew I was going to have to pick something that I wasn't going to get bored with. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I'd always been interested in organized crime. You know, I'd always loved noir fiction, noir movies. Um, so that was sort of a no-brainer as to what I was going to write about, um, you know, long-term as a novelist. Before I'd started writing crime, I was writing, yeah, I mean, you know, I wouldn't, I don't know if it was navel-gazing, but yeah, it was pretty experimental, you know, very literary fiction. Yeah. And I just couldn't really see where it was going. You know, right. I didn't have the same impetus writing that as I did when I started writing genre fiction. Um, you know, part of that's probably a legacy. In terms of young writers, probably a big part of it's just a legacy of, you know, the 20th century in aesthetic terms, didn't end not too long ago. So you had Ulysses, you had the other classics of, you know, stream of consciousness and very interiorized narratives. Um, yeah. I like a lot of that stuff, but it's, it's certainly yeah. not what I do as a writer. I,
3: yeah, I think I like a lot of it too. I even like Infinite Jest, I, you know, like uh, Ulysses through, like the, there was the kind of flowering of that up through up through the 90s. And yeah, it is what we're brought up with. It is what we're told to kind of view as the highest form of literature. Maybe there's maybe it is, you know, it is very literary. But like, I don't want to put any myself or any of us down here, but it's or any of people in this scene. But maybe one part of it is like, you have to be it is a very particular kind of genius that makes a book like Ulysses. But like most of us could do better to start, you know, yeah, writing something entertaining rather than (laughs) delving into, um you know stream of con there's a lot of weird ideas i mean i think i I I go on max
2: oh yeah i I was going to say well the main thing is as a writer is just to write something that you would want to read yourself yeah whatever that is because you need to be engaged with the material as a writer if you're not engaged with it it's not going to work yeah and the reader is going to sense that pretty quickly so if you know writing a a stream of consciousness or you know some kind of like avant-garde surrealist masterpiece is what you're engaged with, then you know, absolutely go for it. But if you're not, you shouldn't feel pressured to have to yeah. write something like that because it's not going to work for anybody—not for you or for the reader.
1: Yeah, absolutely. My uh, my gloss on that is that we all kind of, um, as writers, have different aptitudes and talents for different types of writing. So you, like you say, you should naturally pursue the writing that uh, that you enjoy, that like that you are good at and it doesn't mean that like literary fiction is like better than genre fiction the same way it doesn't mean that like i don't know um one type of cuisine is better than another type of cuisine or one type of kind of like uh like lifters are better than runners or whatever like it's just you know people are different and styles are different and that's like you know, frankly, on New Right, we're, we're champions of diversity here. So <laughs> we uh, we enjoy diversity of literary styles. And, um, yeah, so I think there's a lot to be said about well-written pulp, which certainly uh, your novel is. And to dig back into it a little deeper, we uh, I wanted to get more into McDougal, um, and especially the, uh, he is... You know, a man of God uh, in in his own mind. I think uh, perhaps uh, uh, he honestly believes himself to be a um, a religious man. Uh, I I don't have basis for saying that other than my general the general kind of sense I got from the narrative. But he also obviously uh, objectively is a cult leader. He's a psychopath. He's a bit of a sadist. And so I think this is like this is another archetypal character in uh pulp fiction but in in other uh you know genres as well the kind of uh religious psychopath <laughs> <laughs> and so how did you um um okay here's like from the from the notes literally um are religious leaders always cultists in a certain sense at, does an aptitude for religion kind of coincide with an aptitude for um, controlling people and mm-hmm. uh, for kind of, uh, you know, and, and in fact, that is always something that corrupts somewhat. If you are, have the ability to control people, you will have certain temptations that go along with that.
2: Yeah, that's a great question, because I'm not sure that I have an answer to that one. I mean, certainly, you know, manipulative cult-like behaviors and religion have, you know, that coincided for a long time and, uh, you know, are still prevalent, you know, in today's world. Uh, If there is one disclaimer I want to make on the book is it doesn't represent my feelings about religion or organized religion in any way. Um, You know, McDougal, if he was an actual, you know, Christian, it would be some kind of extreme you know, millennialist kind of group like the Branch Davidians or something like that. So it doesn't really reflect my feelings about, you know, Christianity or religion. Um, But certainly with him, he does. the thing about him is, yeah, exactly what you're talking about, Dan, is that he does believe all this stuff. He does believe that the world is ending and he believes that he's the only one who can, uh, you know, interpret revelation and everything. So he knows who's being saved, who's not being saved. And uh, he uses that knowledge to manipulate the people around him. Uh, that's certainly true with timmy who looks up to him as you know his his father figure
1: yeah and he in in a very interesting way is always uh and in a way that's actually somewhat similar to the protagonist of my own novel he is always able to spin whatever happens as it, as though it were always meant to have been that way and yeah. so when like certain events i don't want to give any spoilers in your novel but uh, certain events happen and he's just like, well, God willed it to to happen. And it's like, well, you kind of fucked up and caused it. <laughs> but uh, it's it's an interesting, you know, character type where they can kind of assimilate any sort of defeat into a, a larger psychological uh, victory because their plan is uh, proceeding apace, shall we say.
2: Yeah, well, I'm glad that you brought that up because I did actually read Cranker this week oh great um, for the yeah. yeah so there yeah, there are probably some spencer-esque qualities <laughs> uh, and there you know and it, it can be very good for comedy obviously with god as a killer it's it's a very it's very black comedy
1: yeah
2: um you know so but yeah i i, I definitely understand what you're talking about
1: yeah being able to uh spin any uh any humiliation or defeat into uh victory just around the corner yeah it's
3: an interesting trait in literature and in life you know it's i think it's founded in a fundamental not like obsessive compulsive disorder but a lot of us and a lot of characters in fiction you know it's there's this tendency to to find you know to to create meaning like both uh, like in life and and when you're writing like everyone wants to kind of assimilate all of that into one broad narrative and in, in terms of religion you know, I, I, recognizing that your novel doesn't reflect you know your feelings on organized religion per se, but I I do think it highlights not something that's true about all religion or all religious people everywhere, but it's it's an interesting kind of psychological case study of the way that religion can be used, and it's twofold in what in the you know the discussion that we we've just had, like not only religion can be used to kind of bolster power and being a religious figure and, and putting yourself up on a pedestal uh, can very much be a way to um, justify your own power, perhaps even your own sadism uh, in the case of, of the character in your book. Um, but also it can involve um, th- this kind of narrative. I think about this a lot, like it's narrative creating element where uh, religion can be a way to kind of give mystical significance to, as you said, every um, every event, even humiliating, obvious setbacks, uh can be kind of assimilated into into a greater narrative uh, of meaning and uh, of of progress toward a of uh, to f- progress toward a concrete goal. Um, and you know, as as you guys mentioned, it's something that's been both nutcranker and God is a killer, and it's kind of this interesting thing. There's a power to that. You know, we almost want to see. Like, I think that there, that some people, and again, in, in life and in literature use that to um as motivation to keep going almost like um and, and that can be very necessary in, in a in a sometimes chaotic world but then it also can can lead to lunacy and dramatic irony um which is, uh, <laughs> are entertaining um it's just interesting it's just an interesting psychological um element there
2: yeah well, i think that i finally got around to watching dune last weekend um oh, mm-hmm. nice I it. Yeah. and uh i think one of the things that Herbert said about writing doing, I mean, obviously it goes a lot into the psychology of power um, and power politics is that he, you know, he pointed out, well, it's positions of power in themselves that attract pathological people. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're never going to have a perfect society because on the one hand, you do need some kind of division of labor or people in positions of power to make sure that there is order, that things do function, that things actually get done. On the other hand, having those positions in the first place is going to attract the worst sorts of people towards them because they're looking for an outlet for their sadism, yeah. uh, you know, for all their unpleasant qualities. So that's just, uh, to me, that's just part of human life. You know, that's going to be part of any society that you can think of.
1: Yeah. Which I think uh, pulp highlights so well, because this focus on moral ambiguity, the idea that like essentially if you're acting at all in the world, you have your own agenda And, um, you know, there even if you're acting in the name of good, there's no one who is like uh, God, you know, who is perfect. So everyone, even if you're acting in the name of good, you're acting also in the name of yourself and you, you know, carry all your vices with you. And so, yeah, I think that uh, pulp boils down to like these uh, great morality plays Because they, um, you know, they center a sort of moral ambiguity that that is centered in God is a killer in the cat and mouse game between Fitzroy and McDougal. And, uh, you know, even uh, between the um, long suffering uh, homeowner (laughs) and uh, her, uh, you know, she's she appears to be not entirely blameless either. Uh, it, it seems as though she co-signed on some, uh, you know, problem, you know um, tragedies of, of some sort, and perhaps she was coerced into them. But uh, I think you do a good job of uh, painting a morally murky and ambiguous world. And, like, how how central do you think that is to uh, the experience of Pulp Fiction?
2: I think, well, Pulp you know, it's a pretty broad field, so it depends on kind of what we mean by pulp, because you have, you know, a lot of the classic pulp writers who are, you know, writing what were basically action heroes, and okay. there's not as much moral ambiguity in those stories, but on the noir side, on the crime side, yeah, it's it's rife, um, you know, and that's sort of the side of pulp that I was drawn to, um, you know, all the great pulp writers, um, you know, and Jim Thompson in particular, he's the, you know, the dime store Dostoevsky, um, so he was he was my, the reason why I started writing crime fiction, I, I read Pop 1280 and thought I need to you know get in on this because you know this is right up my alley um and i could, I could see myself doing this you know as a novelist awesome yeah so i mean in, in writing noir i mean if it's not morally ambivalent or doesn't have morally ambivalent characters it's probably not noir there's quite a lot of bit of that today um what are basically it's commercial fiction with noir trappings um yeah. sort of like hallmark channel noir
1: where like what would you um you know not to, if you don't want to name any names that's fine but like what's an example of Fake noir. That's what? Being no, 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 today. fake
2: noir. It could just be that we have different. We see the genre very differently. And you know, I, I don't want to really want to name names or anything, but
0: yeah, don't want to start right. Yeah, I
2: mean, I I don't belong to that to that group. So I'm kind of you know I'm with Apocalypse Confidential. You can see what we're about. You know what we yep. do. So, I guess you.
0: Yeah,
2: I mean, there's a lot of
3: fake. No, no, I don't. Even, I don't even want to name names either. But you you see this a lot with the kind of Netflixication of everything. I don't know if this is specifically what you're talking about, Max. It's kind of an aside. But there's a lot of a lot of genre aesthetics get recycled in kind of bullshit packages. Uh, maybe we can leave it at that. I, I called no, them. Yeah,
2: no, Netflixication was is a good term for it because a lot of the stuff that I've read, it was like it was written just to be adapted by Netflix. Like that's why they wrote the novel. Yeah. Like you know, it's very odd when you read that too. It's kind of like an uncanny valley effect, where yeah, 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 none of the characters seem like real characters. They're just, you know, it was just written to attempt to get some kind of deal. Like it could be the author doesn't really even care that much about crime fiction. They just want to be an author or whatever. So no, you definitely. I, I try bad. to stay away from stuff like that. Yeah.
3: No. Totally. No. It's out there. You know, in literature and then in movies. I uh, yeah, Netflix. I do think Netflix of vacation kind of gets to it. I think a good example of it is uh kind of what happened with the show black mirror how it kind of used to be more and our, our friend last Things did a, a youtube series on this, how it started off kind of as this dark science fiction and then when netflix took it over it um i mean not only is it woke it just yeah it's like it like it's like it gets all of the life
1: drained out of it but uh, we can probably leave it at that <laughs> yeah yeah no, no I, I think
2: we're in agreement about this
1: yeah yeah i think we all know like the flattening effect of being part of a uh a mass uh, cultural uh, organization and a multinational company with the sensibilities today, you're just like, you know, the ability to express truth goes away. And so too does the ability to create art. Uh, Moving on to, um, we wanted to dig in a bit to the New England setting. And we talked about this a little bit before we started recording but uh, what what drew you to um, set the novel in New Hampshire? And uh, what uh, drew you to uh, kind of like that, that area in general? Because when I think of noir, I think, and maybe this is, I'm not as um, educated as some in the genre, but I think of kind of like cityscapes. I think of San Francisco or New York or something like that.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's another good question. Uh it's not the White Mountains where the book takes place isn't that far from where I live now, which is just outside of Boston. I know, mean, it's probably about a two hour drive. And, uh, you know, I've been up there quite a few times, a uh, couple of times just to go up there pretty much and just take notes and look around and make sure I was, you know, getting some good details into the novel. Because again, like I said, it's not very far away, but, you know, I didn't grow up in that area and I don't live there every day. So I wanted to at least make sure it was plausible. And, uh, you know, some of the best, you know, praise that I've gotten for the book was from people who live in that area or from northern New England. And they said, yeah, this is this is awesome. You know, you incorporate all the stuff that's in our everyday lives that we don't see in a lot of other fiction, Um, you know, certainly not crime fiction. So that's been really, really nice. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, it is it's also different from what, you know, someone who's read my short stories would probably think, because my short stories are mostly about urban crime in and around Boston. Um, whereas this takes place, you know, up in the woods. Uh, so it is a little bit different in that. And the the project that I'm working on now is much more urban uh, than rural. So, you know, I might come back to the rural noir thing again, but uh, I mean, for now, this is kind of like my take on it. It's, it's encapsulated in this book.
1: I feel like in, this is something that's not exactly in the notes, but I'm just kind of running with it. I feel like in this kind of... Uh... Uh, late capitalism in America, or and the you know Western world, like the rural settings actually seem like a, a better um, you know setting for noir type fiction yeah. because so you have like rusting factory towns, you have like all this tragedy inherent in the very landscape. So when I think of some of like the better movies that have come out recently, Out of the Furnace killing them softly it's about like rural american noir and um it it's just this kind of uh very uh ripe setting for the you know clash between good and evil and the uh the the various you know conflicts of our time To
2: sure yeah out of the furnace definitely and i think if i'm thinking of an older film that's probably a simple plan. Did you ever see that? I oh, did. Yeah. 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 So that's that. I like that a lot. I think I saw that at, a, at an impressionable age, and it probably had a big effect on me. Um, I need to read the book that that's based on. I've never. I've still never read it. But uh, yeah, I love that movie. And um, I mean, if there is kind of a guiding spirit behind the book, it would probably be Jim Thompson because, you know, a hyper violent rural noir, uh, with a corrupt county sheriff, is very much up his alley. So he was a big influence on the book.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like today um, got like so many of the like, you know, the stories that would be uh, stereotypically noir type stories, uh, you know, with antiheroes, uh, you know, working you know, fighting against the establishment and kind of like corrupt cops chasing them. Now, that seems like, well, a situation where you have uh, kind of returned veterans home and, you know, authorities who are, you know, maybe not entirely sympathetic and, and all sorts of, you know, uh, you know, it's, it just seems like a great setting now that I think about it.
3: Rural. Yeah. No, I think that's a really interesting point. Yeah. I mean, Max, I, I haven't, I admit, I haven't read your short stories. I'd like to check them out, but it sounds like you write both kind of the urban angle on crime as well as the rural area, uh, r- rural angle, but. Yeah, no, I think uh, Dan, you definitely bring up an interesting point. I mean, it more obviously, there's always been rural crime, and there's o- there's always that, but like, really, yeah, post nineteen nineties Rust Belt is kind of kind of a novel uh, historical moment for this kind of crime literature. I think.
1: Yeah, like I mean, I feel like the people, and you know, this is not to denigrate, um, you know, urban noir. But when I think of the people in cities, I think of like bugged men bug and crazy homeless people. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> t- what I
3: was thinking that's, too.
1: You know, whereas like kind yeah. of these shadowy heroic figures – like I don't see too many heroic figures on the subway with me right. in New York. I see like kind of scared bug men and uh yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I guess like the, the homeless are kind of heroic in a weird way, uh-huh. but uh well, yeah, they're the they're definitely more anti-heroes and here's a way of framing this. <laughs> would is there would, would would
3: there be a dirty Harry on the San Francisco police department for us? now? I don't think so. So yeah, go figure.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you might have a dirty Harry, uh, you know, citizen vigilante, perhaps. Um, that, yeah. but yeah. Uh, well, I mean,
2: it's, yeah, no place is really isolated anymore. But I mean, you have a bit more leeway in a rural setting, you know, because you don't have, you know, the eye of Sauron on you, you know, at all times. Exactly. So, hey, that's you know, really you can get. Away. I mean, yeah, there's still, you know, you can't get away with quite as much as you used to. But yeah, as a literary setting, there are a lot of possibilities. Yeah. yeah. That's true.
3: And there's the again, I know you you know you've said the book is not political and and whatnot. And I definitely, definitely respect that. Um, and I don't think it is. But nevertheless, I would also add that in a rural setting, you can kind of just lean into something that feels a little more vital, not so much politically proper, but just sociologically about you know the state of the United States as it is now. Um, there's that kind of implicit like sense of rural decay, um, which is a lot more interesting right now than urban decay we all know about urban decay but what's happened kind of to quote unquote flyover country over the past 30 years well we all kind of know about that too but nevertheless i, I think it's a much more vital backdrop uh, in this day and age
2: yeah and if someone has a political take on the book from you know whatever stripe that's fine with me mm-hmm. um you know and i think you know probably whatever political feelings that i have or you know metapolitical feelings about human nature or human behavior They're all in the book, but they're impossible for me to paraphrase, you know, which is probably why, you know, I write fiction and why I wrote God is a Killer in the first place. Because there are things that I can't really say in a conversation. I can't articulate them in the same way. You know, there's an emotional quality behind them that has to go into a, a long form narrative.
3: Completely. Well, I I very, very much respect that. And look, this is new right. So obviously, we always kind of had a little bit of a sometimes tongue in cheek, but sometimes pretty sincere political angle on our podcast. But look, um, I mean, especially over the past two years, like more and more, I have absolutely nothing to say about matters of of obvious political significance or electoral politics. And more and more, I think that, yeah, most of the political thoughts I have are, as you said, Metapolitical takes on human nature and um and you know sociological sort of more metapolitical thoughts that I do think are much better explored aesthetically and and in literature. Again, this is New Right. We've kind of branded ourselves with that, but yeah, man, I I'm I don't necessarily want to talk about you know this or that in relation to what Biden's doing. I uh, you know I'm much more interested in you know as you said.
2: Yeah, no, I think that I'm I'm a fan of the podcast, and I think that what you guys have done is great. Um, you. And you've had a lot of great guests on top of that, um, a lot of great writers. I just think that, I mean, the meta-political stuff is so important because those are how you get political systems in the first place. Exactly. You know, if they're all yeah, based yeah. on, well, what is or what is bad for people? I mean, these these questions have to be answered beforehand. And you so you really are looking at human nature and human behavior before you're looking at, you know, the budget or whatever, you know, people yeah. you know, are supposed to be arguing about in terms of politics.
3: Right. Well, that right there is kind of my political take on things right now. I mean, you know, from like a quote unquote right wing perspective, it's like, obviously, you know, Trump out of the picture, <laughs> Biden, you know, it's kind of this, I, I'm very much bored kind of with, 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 and disheartened by with what's going on on a mainstream political level. So it's almost like we need to think about, and, you know, people like BAP on our corner Twitter and others talk about this, like, you have to kind of readdress those foundational questions because whatever comes next politically, it's going to be something new. And it has to start with, you know, this kind of consideration, I think, and literature and art Mm -hmm. can play a role in that.
1: So this has been my
0: conclusion anyway.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I agree 100%. So I think this might be a good part to uh, discuss the, uh, history of noir fiction and uh some of your favorites today some of your favorites in the past and uh so i've um i've always enjoyed elmer leonard which uh, i imagine is uh, probably a favorite of sorts of yours as well just because he's so uh such a big guy uh james elroy but uh then you know moving more to the uh more distant past uh raymond chandler and others uh, who uh, who are your favorite smacks?
2: Uh, well, yeah, I love both Leonard and Elroy.
1: Um, in
2: terms of my personality, I'm closer, I'm much closer to Leonard than I am to Elroy, just as a person and as a writer. I think, and he was a big influence on me, and uh, that was actually how I met Dawson online. Is that um, uh, you know, we both like Delmore Leonard. Yeah, um, so that that's was uh, how. I, yeah, so that was how I met him, and that's how I later got involved with um, you know, the cast of characters at Apocalypse Confidential. Um,
0: yeah, so not, my, oh, yeah, on. I
2: write, I write a, in a pretty sparse, you know, pretty hard-boiled style. It's not that literary, um, if you read it. And, uh, you know, for me, that really starts with Dashiell Hammett at sure. Black Mask. Um, you know, and of course, he's a tremendous, you know, like, legendary novelist. You know, he wrote Red Harvest, Maltese Falcon, Glass Key. Um, so he was a huge influence on me. And then he had a successor at Black Mask uh, called Paul Kane, who wrote a book called Fast One. And he's even more hard-boiled than Dashiell Hammett, so he was another big influence on me. And I think that what I took from those guys most of all was uh, speed of narrative. Um, I couldn't believe how much action Dashiell Hammett could compress into 15 or 20 pages. I'd never seen anything like it. Um, so that that was a huge influence on me and had a huge impact on the way that I write and how I see literature. Awesome. Going beyond, yeah, going kind of moving forward in time, I like some of the mid-century noir authors like uh, Jim Thompson, Charles Williford. There was a lot of humor in what they did. Um, A lot of black humor, almost of the, you know, like Nathaniel West school, Uh, you know, like, you know, petty sadism and, you know, lots of, uh, you know, murder and stuff. And then I think sort of where I really come into the writers who influenced me is probably late sixties, early seventies, because you had an entire generation of writers. You had George V. Higgins, uh, he wrote Friends of Eddie Coyle and Cogan's oh, Trade*. Oh, sure. Who, yeah. You know, based on. yeah. And he was born the next town over from where I live. Uh, he was born oh, in Boston. Wow. I live in Stoughton. So he's, you know, he lived in this area his whole life. Um, you know, I also write about the Boston underworld and I use lots of dialogue. Uh, so he's influenced me and he was also a primary influence on Omar Leonard. Higgins was the reason uh, Leonard went from writing Westerns to writing crime fiction after he read Friends of Eddie Coyle. Dang. Uh, which is funny because their their sensibilities are totally different. Because Higgins is extremely grim, and uh, you know, and very black. And then uh, with with Leonard, you get a lot more humor. It's a bit more lighthearted. You know, you're laughing. You're laughing at these criminals a lot of the time because uh, mm-hmm. you can't believe like what they're getting themselves into. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I'd say Higgins, and then Donald Goines. Oh sure. One, yeah, Donald Goines, and then another guy who's not talked about as much, uh, Shane Stevens. He wrote yeah, a book I called, haven't heard of him. Yeah, he wrote a book called Dead City, which has been out of print for a long time. But for me, is probably the best mobster gangster novel that's ever been written by anybody, including The Godfather mm-hmm. um, or Little Caesar or any of the other great ones. Um, I wish it was back in print so more people could read it.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe that is a, uh, a mission for Apocalypse uh, Confidential to get those rights. That would be and- a dream uh i've
2: i've sort of looked into it from what i've heard is that the uh his estate is not interested in or whoever has the rights to the book is not interested in letting anybody publish it that's too bad for the time being so who knows maybe that'll change in the future
1: now i have have to ask you uh what is your favorite elmer leonard novel
2: that's a good question i was actually talking about this with the mutual online not too long ago i think from his 70s period i'd have to say swag that was okay. his more kind of like his gritty Detroit period.
1: And I'm not then, sure you know, I read that one. I went through a period when I was like 12, when I was reading all these Elmer Leonard books, I guess I was a bit precocious in that regard. And I remember really liking Killshot. Killshot's and, great. Yeah. And Freaky Deaky. <laughs>
2: yeah, I read Freaky Deaky. That, I don't think that was up there uh, with Killshot for me. If I just yeah. think of three, probably off the top of my head, I would say swag, kill shot, and get shorty. Okay. Um, yeah. The no, is great. great. So Those the movies is great too.
1: Yeah, the they adapt so well to film, which is like as you say, it uh, is in you know a type of narrative that focuses on action. So it's it's very easy to to not easy, but it, it's a good fit for uh, yeah. adaptation to film. No, exactly. I think that
3: to film conversion is, I it's like, it might be like, maybe not as high as Stephen King, but I, I don't know, it's, 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 I, I don't want to name a number because I'm probably wrong. It's, it's upwards of a dozen or more, maybe even like 20 movies that have been made, of or TV, you know, so, so many adaptions and they're, they're still being made. I mean, tons of times.
1: out of sight, I think is probably my favorite out of, although, um, yeah, no, I would say out of sight is probably my favorite Leonard adaptation.
2: I think i have to go with Jackie Brown. That's probably number one for me. Yeah, I forgot okay. that was one. no, that's, that, that one's really good out.
1: too.
2: And that shows you how similar you know how much uh Tarantino took from Leonard. Because Tarantino's oh, yeah. on record is saying that he doesn't make noir films. Oh. Wow. Uh, you know, he makes he makes sort of like twisted crime films, sort of the way that uh, you know, Charles Williford and uh Carl Hyacin will write a crime novel. You know, they'll just the more outrageous they make it, the better. And I remember reading an interview with him where he, he mentioned those two writers in particular, along with Leonard. Because there isn't a lot of moral ambiguity. Not so much in... Um, no, in yeah. I,
0: not I, in I tend to agree, actually.
2: Has. Yeah, that that
3: it's not so much noir. I, I, with the exception, maybe, of Jackie Brown.
2: Yeah, so. I mean, it's, it's there is some noir in there, but he's... Uh, not totally, yeah. Yeah, it's not... It doesn't have the same murkiness. No, yeah, no, no I think that's fair. Like a classic noir.
3: Fair characterization. I just looked this up because I was curious. This is just from Wikipedia, but I, we're at like about twenty-three Elmer Leonard adaptions for TV. Wow,
1: that's yeah. impressive.
3: And I know. I I've seen. You know. I know they're still being made. Like i you see scripts kicking around. Like this is going to get made. So, yeah. No, it's he's uh, very adaptable. I had one random question. Have you ever read the book Another Day in Paradise by Eddie Little? Good
1: question. I, is that
2: the one that the Larry Clark film is based
3: on? Yes. Is, yeah. Oh, I've seen the movie, but I haven't read the book. I'm the opposite. I, I read the book, haven't seen the movie. I surprisingly haven't seen the movie. Just a very rare. I'm not well read in crime fiction. I would like to read more of it. But uh, that's one that I've read that I enjoyed. And there, in particular, there's a character. I don't know if he ended up in the movie. but There's a character in Another Day in Paradise who kind of has a similar thing going on uh, with religion as your character, where he's like a, a criminal and, and essentially uses... Uh, you know qu- qu- quotes from revelation and other parts of the bible uh to justify his uh his violence um it's it's kind of a thing you see in a lot of crime fiction i think i uh, just was curious if you'd read it but
2: no i had but yeah like i said he's kind of mcdougall's an archetypal character in some yeah. some ways he has lots of similarities with other characters and night of the hunter i think was probably the biggest hmm. influence um on the novel have you seen night of the hunter
1: i, I have not yeah, well,
2: if I'm thinking of my three favorite noir films, they're all really easy for me to name because they all have Robert Mitch in them. <laughs> uh, so that's, so that's uh, Out of the Past, uh, Night of the Hunter, and then Friends of Eddie
1: Coyle. Right. Okay. Those yeah, yeah. Eddie Coyle three. is on my list. Yeah, and then all, I should put the Robert others Mitchell. on there too. Yeah. Um, With regard to film, I was wondering, it seems there's like similarly to how online there's a resurgence of interest in... Uh, noir fiction it seems like there's a resurgence of interest in noir film and so you have like the nice guys you have um other kind of uh films that are coming out you know in you know past few years now like what is your sense of the kind of resurgence of the noir uh theme in contemporary cinema
2: well, it could just be that it's time and that, you know, we're going through another cycle. But it's it's also easy to get into because so much of it's just good. You know, there have been lots of great noir films. Um, you know, a lot of them have lots of style, great characters, lots of action. So it's like, what's what's there not to like? Yeah. Um, I mean, the influence that Drive has had on yeah. popular culture over the past 10 years is remarkable. Absolutely. Being um, in the theater, I would never have predicted that. Um, and you know, and Refn just had his latest project come out, um, but Copenhagen Cowboy, which I haven't I, seen. I haven't. Um, seen. Yeah, yeah. I need to see that. So, um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm all for it because I write noir, and if you know <laughs> if you're into noir, that's, that that could only be good for me. So, but I'll yeah. be writing noir, you know, regardless. It doesn't really matter.
1: Excellent. Uh, well, our kind of uh, last question here. Though we, we can keep talking for longer, but the last one that we no- noted on our notes is Max Thrax. Now, he uh, is it an homage to the Roman Emperor? Where uh, at what point did you decide to call yourself Max Thrax? I don't remember the exact
2: moment I decided that, but it does come from him. Um, I mean, I love you know, reading about the Roman Empire, uh, reading Roman history, and I've been influenced by a lot of um, ancient Roman writers. Um, you know, as a prose stylist. So I'm thinking of some off the top of my head. I mean, I would say um, Cato the Elder. Uh, he wrote a book about agriculture that if you read it, it's the most sparse, hard-boiled prose, the most <laughs> thing you've ever read in your life. And it's just this guy talking about how to set up your little, you know, farm in the countryside. Um, so I love that. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, you've got some of the the great, more well-known historians like Tacitus, uh, Sallust. And actually, right now, I'm re-listening to... Um, an audio book of uh, caesar's gallic war yeah
1: um, no, idea. Oh,
2: he was i mean it, it seems almost unfair that julius caesar should also be a, you know one of the greatest prose stylists ever but it's a fact yeah. Um, so, yeah so you know i try not to get too down about that but i mean it's it's an amazing book he was a big influence on my style just so direct so vigorous um you know it's a lot of the things that i want to be as a writer um yeah. so he's the guy i keep coming back to
1: yeah, I, I found out about, not found out about Caesar, but found out about his writing from the Good Old Boys podcast, and I had no idea that he had, you know, written The Gallic Wars and was such a great prose stylist. And uh, yeah, it's been on my list to dig into it, and um, I've, I've heard it's very rewarding.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think you'll dig it. Um, as, yeah, as far as Max Thrax, he was known as being one of the less impressive emperors um he was you know known for being the soldier emperor so I mean, he was known for that, being
1: gigantic though right yeah
2: he was he's, huge well he was um you know thrax means he's from thrace so he was from you know this wild place yeah you know, north of greece if you read you know greek tragedy sometimes they'll use thrace as a figure of speech like you know there's some wild stuff you know going on up there we're not so savage as you know the people up there so all those yeah. conversations i like just you know just the ironic thing that yeah he was a roman emperor but he wasn't really that great
1: <laughs> but he was a beast he
2: was he was a beast of a man that's for sure mm-hmm.
1: there we go well i, I, I guess, guess i oh go on i'm sorry i
3: all was right. curious um just given the new england setting of it all um and also he is i believe name dropped on apocalypse confidential's website is hp lovecraft now this wouldn't come through so textually because it's a very very different genre but i'm just curious if you're a just based on the the New England of it all, if you're a, if you're a Lovecraft fan,
2: yeah, I am a Lovecraft fan. Um, you know, I don't write horror or you know even like cosmic horror or anything like that. But uh, some of that, you know, the cosmic terror, it can be you know kind of infused. I think it is. it's, yes, it's very very subtle. But yeah, it is. I'm I'm glad that you spotted that because it is there at a very subtle level. Yeah, and that, that does have just something to do with I think how old New England is, um, that it was you know one of the first places that the English came. When they came over here and to them, it just seemed like this, you know, vast, you know, imposing forest. If you read, I think it's in the stage directions for the crucible. It mentions the fact that the Puritans saw the new world as, you know, the Satan Citadel. You know, they thought that all kinds of stuff were going on in the woods out there. And if you go to the woods in New England today, I mean, they're still pretty dark. Um, I think this was sort of a, a controversial subject online a little while ago. Uh, about the New England landscape and about how scary and imposing it is. And, you know, it's all true. You know, I can only yeah. confirm that.
3: No, I've yeah. you know, limited time in New England, but I have a, a similar impression for sure. And um, yeah, no, I do think it, that that kind of worldview is suffused definitely into your work playing out through the New England setting and God is a killer. Um, But even you could probably even make the argument in noir in general. There's that almost Gnostic sense that kind of Dan, you alluded to earlier where it's like, you know the, the realm of human affairs is tainted. Everyone is tainted by their own self interest, and there's this great darkness and and sadism that comes through. Not exactly what Lovecraft was writing about, but it's a, it's a dark. There's a darkness to it that I think ends up suffused, uh, right. And obviously, yeah, time. Hawthorne.
2: You know that was a, oh, yeah. a major you know subject in his own writing. Um, you know, original sin. And actually, my, the town where I'm in now, Stoughton, is named after the chief justice of the Salem witch trials. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, things are still pretty old and eerie around here. Yeah, definitely. Well,
1: spooky times. Yep. <laughs> well, all right. On that note, uh, if uh, do you have any additional uh, items you'd like to hit or? Um, no, other than thanking both of you for having me on here. Uh, absolutely. You know, Thank you for God, coming on.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. My novel, God is a Killer. Um, it's published by Close to the Bone. Uh, it's available on Amazon, an ebook, and in print. And uh, check out Apocalypse Confidential, uh, which is apocalypse-confidential.com. Uh, uh, we've yeah. got our special coming out next month. So uh, be sure to look out for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Awesome.
1: You got to check out Apocalypse Confidential. These guys put out an awesome magazine. The art is amazing, the stories and reviews and everything are amazing. And, uh, you know, Max, his novel, it's just honestly a page turner i went through it very quickly because i was just so sucked into the kind of dark and uh very entertaining world that you created max so great that um, means a
2: lot to me thank you
1: yeah no thank you um and thank you for coming on
2: oh, absolutely anytime
1: yeah great to talk to you i'm sure we'll talk more in the future all right sounds good
2: take care. all right you guys take it easy Bye.